Let us uh, begin with prayer. Father God, we thank you for yet another day here to uh, hear from your word, both in study and then later on um, experience uh, your word in worship to enjoy your its renewing power to renew us, our weary souls. And so we ask uh, your blessing upon it uh, this day. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, so... My gospel series of the four gospels has so far just stuck in the gospel of Matthew, and we're going to begin in Matthew today, but hopefully we'll quickly hit up Mark and Luke before we end. Um, Quickly to review uh, Matthew, uh, we finished around Matthew chapter 18 last week. Uh, Matthew, remember, begins with the genealogy, which he calls the book of Genesis to begin. Um, We have really the early origin stories of Jesus in those first four chapters. Uh, Jesus uh, beginning his ministry, and then the bridge is Jesus' calling of the disciples, that is in chapter 4. Um, then we noticed how in 423 of Matthew and 935 of Matthew, um, Matthew makes clear his own divisions. He quotes the same things uh, when it comes to the Gospels, actually, and we'll find this with the outline I gave you of, of Mark's and Luke's in your handouts today, along with Matthew's, there's really little debate between theologians of where the Gospel writers see the, the main divisions of the Gospel because of how clearly they, they put it there. We then uh, covered a little bit of the Sermon on the Mount, um, talked about that. We also mentioned how uh, the Sermon on the Mount, take it as wisdom literature in, in, in terms of it's not a, a set of ten new commandments. It's, it's wisdom in order to live a full life. Um, and that book of James that troubled like a Luther, you have to also read James same way. It's wisdom literature. It's literature in which uh, um, we see the blessing of life. It's not that we can perfectly live that way, but... We uh, grow, obviously, in sanctification, um, and uh, sometimes we grow by failing to live the life of the Sermon on the Mount. We can be sanctified in that. Um, We then, after that, uh, shifted, and we saw how the centurion, for instance, and these Gentiles continue to notice who Jesus was. Um, We talked about, um, throughout Scripture, They keep receiving him in the Galilee area and embracing him. Uh, We talked about the two uh, feeding stories. Um, Hold on. We talked a little bit about the Our Father. Okay. Um, Sorry, Samuel, one second. Let me catch up to my notes because I'm just going over quickly. Um, So we talked about uh, how... Matthew 12, 14 is the critical juncture, the critical shift of the gospel. And that was when the Pharisees at that time, the scribes, they've hardened to Jesus. And now Matthew makes clear in his gospel, and we're going to really see this today, that they're now just plotting essentially to destroy him, to destroy his ministry. And uh, that really is going to be fleshed out through the remainder of the book. Uh, immediately in chapter 12, the very next um, encounter Jesus has with these figures, they ascribe Jesus' uh, Jesus' miracles to being those of Satan. Um, and so the hardening of, of the uh, religious elites, in one sense, is really detailed in Matthew's account. Um, and that 12.14 is, but the Pharisees went out and plotted how they might kill Jesus. Um, so that is that um, really is a turning point. Uh, then we Matthew continues to have this two types of people that the separation. And again, it's not a separation because they're any better than it's a separation because they heed the wisdom of Christ. Maybe we'll pick those as those in Christ and those outside of Christ um, continuing to establish a new community, uh, Matthew gives us quite a bit when it comes to the idea of the ecclesia, the church that would that would come. Um, we we often think of the church and we think of the church here today, and there there is a little bit different reality to the New Testament church and then what church was for the Old Testament covenant community, and so. Uh, 
Matthew will continue to uh, pull on this thread. Um, So then we talked about the first feeding story. Jesus fed 5,000. He ultimately was left with 12 loaves. He had the miraculous water crossing where he crossed over the water. He walked on the water. Um, And if you talk to an Old Testament Jewish boy, I said at that time, you asked him, talked about a miraculous water crossing where the feeding in the wilderness, where 12, a group of 12 was blessed. They would talk about the 12 tribes of Israel and the Exodus being fed in the wilderness with the miraculous water crossing. Uh, so that first 5,000 is Jesus's exodus of the Jewish people, symbolically, Matthew. And then Matthew does not uh, just want to tell us yet again, Jesus has um, the ability to make lots of uh, fish and bread on demand, but he has Jesus feeds the 4,000. And for those 4,000, there's also water crossing. There's a water crossing on a boat. Um, uh, this is where Pennington and I disagree slightly. There's a water crossing on the boat that he, after he leaves the Sermon on the Mount, he feeds uh, 4,000 also in the wilderness. And in those 4,000, he's left this time not with 12 baskets, but with seven baskets. The number seven, of course, being the fullness of creation, giving it to the world, the gift of the world. Uh, second deliverance with the second feeding in Matthew. Um, and I pointed out that if you thought that was crazy, just read Matthew 15:31, and it points out the people in those second feeding began to worship the God of Israel. They were Gentiles. They were not Jews. Um, so, there we go. All right. And yeah, again, the crossing of the sea that time was a boat. Um, maybe some allusions to Noah. Then I quickly concluded because we ran out of time. And we talked about how uh, uh, we talked a little bit about Peter confessing of Christ that a uh, little bit. But um, the disciples, ironically, after these two feedings of the 5,000, the 4,000, next time we catch up with the disciples, they're worried about not having bread. Um, so that becomes ironic in the fact that here I have one more. Did you? Oh, you got one. OK. Put it over there. Um, so they're worried about not having bread. Um, so we'll continue from there. In Matthew 17, we have the transfiguration. Um, Peter, James, and John seeing the glory. Um, the disciples, again, um, they continue to struggle with faith at this point. Uh, for instance, I pointed out last week how the Canaanite woman, who would, there was no Canaanites actually in those days, but Matthew's doing an intentional thing by bringing up the Canaanite woman, was called a woman of great faith. While Peter, while he walked out of the water, and he then loses faith, he sinks, and Jesus compares him with little faith. Um, so the disciples still into this point um, are shown as little faith in one sense. Um, so Peter, James, and John begin to focus on equating Moses, Elijah, and Jesus all in one. The Father corrects them. The booming power of the Father's voice sets them in fear, and Jesus calms this fear, and he's the one who's left in glory standing um, in that. Then chapter 18, we begin the fourth discourse of Matthew's gospel. It's from 18.1 to 20.34. And... um, This is where Jesus begins to talk about uh, forgiveness. How much we forgive someone. Uh, This is where uh, Jesus says it's 70 times 7. Not that we only forgive 490 times. But Peter's boasting about maybe giving up, forgiving someone 7 times. And and Jesus is essentially saying, be inexhaustible in your forgiveness. He's calling them to that call. Um, Then Jesus... uh, during the fourth narrative, he talks about um, the, he has the conservative view of divorce in his day. Uh, his exclusions are very few. Basically, adultery expressed in uh, in the text in chapter 19, and um, further on, uh, abandonment is shown in later scripture. But um, after the disciples hear the view, 
the conservative view of Jesus, one thing we miss in that passage is that they notice it's a conservative view and they actually talk about, hey, maybe it's better not to be married, ironically. So, um, uh, so Jesus for his day, there were several camps on divorce in the Jewish culture. You could, there was a camp that you could divorce your wife if you didn't like the meal she prepared for you. It was so liberal. Um, <laughs> you could, you could divorce her, no fault divorce. Um, and then there was a, a, a more conservative account, which, um, Jesus takes a conservative position on this. Matthew 20, we have the laborers in the vineyard. And uh, it is a debated parable because it's a little open-ended. However, um, um, it's the one where everybody's paid the same wage, even regardless of when they start working. Um, And it seems in the context of the forgiveness and view that Jesus is saying, however it seems, um, however generous God's been with you, you don't keep your eye focused on that. Don't look at others and complain about how generous he's been with them. Um, essentially look inward. Stop looking outward and focusing on, hey, that doesn't seem fair. That doesn't seem fair. That's, that's not the life that Christ is calling us to. Um, then 20 f- finishes with Jesus being called the son of David again, which is, again, hearkening back to even the beginning of the book and when we talked about the genealogy. And now... He enters in 21 the city of David. He enters the city of David. And 21 is the final narrative section that we get. And it's the sixth overall section in Matthew. And uh, the division happens in 21.1. The setting has changed. And he's arrived again, as Matthew often does, at a new mountain. This time he's at Mount Olives. And there's this triumphal entry. And a lot of times um, it's debated. You know, people sometimes will say, well, they celebrate Jesus in the triumphal entry on that day. Uh, just, you know, a week later, they're going to say crucify him. Probably more likely than that is that Jesus has is been coming in from Galilee. He has a following that's been coming in from him, with him. And that... Uh, following essentially celebrates his entry into Jerusalem. And then as they get into the throng of the city and the disbursement of the city, then there are those who reject Jesus. Jesus, Matthew is really going to clearly show that um, the the city of Jerusalem is going to reject Jesus. Um, So their voice will wane out as the voices inside the city will take over eventually are um, you crucify him? Crucify him. So um, that's really, I think, a better way to understand it. The temple cleansing occurs then, um, that when Jesus cleanses the temple, and then right after that, the fig tree is cursed. Uh, this is a judgment passage stuff. Um, the kind that the the language is reminiscent. If you remember, like the book of Ezekiel. Ezekiel has those illustrations where he becomes part of the parable. The fig tree is a, is a prophetic illustration of the judgment that is uh, going to be upon Israel. Think about the first Babylonian destruction. Very much Jesus is coming in in a prophetic sense similar to that of Jeremiah and Ezekiel. Um, a lot of overlaps in this part with that. We have then the three great sonship parables of Jesus. And all three of them are mixed in to challenges to Jesus. And so, again, this dividing line of those who can understand the wisdom of the Lord and those who reject it is shown by Jesus switching from parable to a pharisaical challenge. Parable, pharisaical challenge. Parable, pharisaical challenge. Um, one example of this is the Pharisees in Matthew twenty-two fifteen align themselves um, with who in verse 16 of that? text. Which group? The Pharisees align themselves with the the Herodians, the people of Herod. Uh, So the conservatives are with essentially the Edomites. um, And just this this group, uh, it shows kind of the corruptions. And they come up with the parable. 
or the question of paying taxes to Caesar, which Jesus uh, shows himself as the great philosopher. He, he spikes the football, basically, when he shows them a coin and expertly answers their trap question that really could have had him put to death for one answer or the other answer. Uh, they put him in a catch-22 um, for being either unloyal to Rome or committing blasphemy against God. And so Jesus says, of course, about the coin, whose face is on the coin, um, it's Caesar, so give to Caesar what is Caesar, give to God what is God. And after uh, Jesus summarizes the law for the Pharisees in 2241, Jesus now asks a question after all the challenges have been made of him, and it's a simple one. But Jesus is going to pull from the Old Testament in order to do this and show the Son of God is not just this new idea, but it's something in the, that these leaders should know well. And so Jesus asks him the following question. What do you think about Christ? Whose son is he? They said to him, the son of David. He said to them, how is it that David in the spirit calls him Lord, saying, and Jesus is quoting Psalm 110 here. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put my, your enemies under your feet. And so Jesus says, if then David calls his descendant Lord, how is he David's son? And no one of the Pharisees was able to answer this. These experts of the law on this simple question of Jesus about Psalm 110 about how David could call someone Lord who would just be a son of his, a descendant of his. Um, that, that question so bothers them uh, that this is actually um, the last time uh, Matthew makes clear that they're in fear of challenging Jesus in this way again. They don't want to have scripture debates with Jesus anymore after Jesus uh, quotes Psalm 110. So um, then after this in 23, after Jesus essentially silences the mouths of his critics, he has seven woes and warnings. Um, and those woes and warnings are essentially don't be worried about the externals, worry about the internals in the summary statement. And then after he has been into Jerusalem and he has encountered all this resistance in the city of Jerusalem, and he has um, silenced his critics and now pronounced seven woes over uh, his opponents. Um, Jesus then gives us the beautiful illustration, the beautiful lament over uh, Jerusalem itself um, about how he would have um, loved to have drawn them in. Uh, the uh, So uh, that's the one where... Um, it's the, uh, the, the mother of a hen, I believe, if I'm not mistaken. So, yeah. Um, and then, for the final section, for the judgment of Jesus, uh, for the Last Supper, it slows down starting in 26. The key thing to point out is that the Last Supper is the Last Supper. It's a, Christ has given us a new one. So there is no sense... It is the culmination of the Passover to look to the new supper that we have in Christ. And even in one sense, we await, if we you know, read the end of our Bible in Revelation, the greater feast, the marriage supper of the Lamb to come. Uh, that's the fullness that Jesus has begun to usher in. And uh, all right. So Jesus, uh, I mean, we'll talk a little bit about the Last Supper uh, a little more in John, when we cover John next week. Um, but it both celebrates looking back and uh, forward. One last thing about the faithful and the, um, the faithless. Uh, Matthew does intentionally show Peter and Judas uh, as kind of illustrations of this dynamic. Uh, Peter ultimately will deny Jesus, but he has the wisdom to repent to come back to the Lord, whereas Judas, yes, he, falls, he feels guilt for his betrayal of Christ, but he doesn't have the wisdom to repent and seek forgiveness. And so Matthew, at the end, 
while he, he constantly is cutting this division between the man who lives or the woman who lives in wisdom, the follower who lives in wisdom, and the one who does not. Um, Peter and Judas themselves become an illustration of this point for Matthew. I uh, talked about how Matthew begins with the the um, the genealogy in the book that it would have followed in a Jewish breakdown of the canon uh, would have been the book of Chronicles. Um, it's full of genealogies. But also, what does Matthew end with? He ends with the great commission. Listen to the last verse of Chronicles, Second Chronicles, um, 36.23. Um, listen to how Chronicles concludes. Thus says Cyrus, the king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth and has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may the Lord his God be with him. Let him go up. Uh, There are little parallels with that final verse of Chronicles. There's quite a few parallels with ultimately the Great Commission. Lord God has given Christ all authority on heaven and earth, and so he calls the disciples to go, therefore, and baptize in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And um, so Matthew, in his conclusion, he's intentional, both to begin the the, uh, gospel with the genealogy that kind of ties it into the Chronicles and also Genesis theme of genealogies, but also at the end, the Great Commission, how Christ phrases it, parallels those final words from uh, the king of Persia, um, sending them in authority. And obviously, it's a, it's a greater fulfillment. Um, so yeah, so that sums up Matthew. Any final questions before we quickly do blimp overviews of Mark and Luke? Doing the Josh Cools thing, waiting for it to get a little uncomfortable. Okay. All right, we'll move on to Mark. Mark is uh, probably written first. Most people believe it's the gospel that was written first these days. If you go in the early church, though, around the time of Augustine, they would have argued Mark was written second. Um, doesn't really matter. But Mark ultimately becomes a. Uh, is, is Peter's take on the Jesus story. So remember, we talked in the first class about we should look at the Gospels as four separate portraits of Christ. Let the author make their portrait. Um, John Mark himself was the cousin or nephew. The word in the Greek allows for either a Barnabas, who is Paul's companion from Syria. Uh, we know John Mark was from a Levite family in Cyprus. Um, and we know that John Mark left Barnabas and Paul mid-missionary trip on the first time he ever went on a mission trip. And so Paul famously kind of says, all right, I'm done with him. He's not uh, somebody I can rely upon. And so uh, I don't want him on a second mission trip. And Paul ultimately is proved wrong because John Mark uh, becomes a very faithful witness of Christ. Um, It most likely was written in the early 50s. And it most likely was written in the city of Rome. Um, some people debate it might have been written in the 60s or late 50s. And that's because Jesus in the wilderness in Mark, it talks about the wild beasts. Um, and so people who are wondering if that could have been a comfort to the people in Rome. Uh, what was the first gospel? Most people believe Mark was the first one written these days. Um, early church would have said, majority would have said Matthew. Uh, but the early church really doesn't start commenting on this till about 300 years in. So, um, yeah. All right. So, again, most likely written in Rome. The focus of the book is really twofold. First is, who is this man? And that makes uh, the section in chapter 8 verse 27, the confession of Caesarea and Philippi. Um, uh, that, that's a, an interesting point. Uh, Caesarea and Philippi is almost portrayed as the mountaintop 
that, that chapter 8, I think it's 27, is it through 34 or 31? I mean, it might be through 34. I don't know if there's a, it's either 34 or 31. And then um, Mark does something where going into Jerusalem, even though Jerusalem's on a, what? What's the geography of Jerusalem? It's on a, yeah, for them it's a mountaintop. He almost portrays Jerusalem as a descent. And, and again, the whole theme of the Gospels, really all of them, is Jesus is embraced quite a bit outside of Jerusalem and Galilee. Uh, but as he gets closer and closer to Jerusalem, he, he experiences more resistance. Um, so yeah, the, the key part, oh, this is 33. That's 33, all right. Not 34, all right. Um, so, this confession here, uh, let me read it for you guys, or if somebody, here we go. Confession of chapter 8 really gives us the two main points of the Gospel of Mark that he wants to make clear, uh, that Peter wants to make clear. The first part is a clear revelation of Jesus as the Messiah. So, for those, we read verses 27 through 30. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the village, villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist. The other says, Elijah. The other is one of the prophets. And he asked them, But who do you say I am? Peter answered him, You are the Christ, so the Messiah. Remember, Jesus, Jesus Christ is, Christ is not his last name. That's a statement of who he is, the Messiah. You are the Christ. And Jesus strictly charged them to tell no one about him. So that reveals who Jesus is. And then the second half of the book is really kind of summarized by the next verses of, of the Messiah will have to suffer and die. And he, so just continuing on. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things to be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And after three days, rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And so um, Mark's account is the most probably harsh, if you could say it, but the most willing to be fairly open about the disciples' rejection. Uh, probably gives you an insight into Peter. Uh, Peter probably is, uh, as a personality, uh, he, Peter tends to emphasize in this gospel account um, how off track the disciples often are. Um, and um, Mark, I, I explained in the first class how all the gospels followed the pattern of Greek biography. Uh, Mark is the most like a traditional Greek biography. That's why in the Gospel of Mark, it's almost all action. It's showing Jesus miracle, 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 miracle. Um, uh, and the theology, Mark doesn't so much get into the theology of matters. Whereas we look at the Gospel of John, John gets a lot into the theology, but maybe uh, doesn't so much get into the miracles. Um, and we'll we'll talk a little bit about more of that more of that next week because there's some interesting thoughts on those. Um, I'll, I'll spoil it. Some people are starting to think that John might have wrote his gospel in part with the expectation you might have read Mark um, as a theological um, kind of closing of the gospel canon. So again, Mark is very much uh, presenting. The gospel as a Greek philosopher, uh, Jesus as a Greek philosopher kind of text, uh, they would have known it. Uh, Mark, by far, it's obvious in the Greek, not for me, I don't know the Greek well enough, but to my professors and stuff, uh, that he's a secondary Greek speaker. Yeah, the Greek is the most rough in Mark, um, and uh, but yeah, but that's he was again a child of a Levite family. Um. Mark has no opening frame like Luke and Matthew, um, but Mark shows a land in exile. 
So kind of the Babylonian exile idea, ruled by oppressive leaders. Um, In the baptism of Christ, we have the, the, there's two tearings uh, that Mark really, and they're counted for in the other Gospels, but two tearings uh, that are important in Mark. One is the baptism, the Spirit. It's like a tearing of the heavens. And the Spirit descends like a dove. But also then we have the veil tearing at the elves. And so um, Mark is really in that tearing illustration, um, going to Isaiah texts and other texts. Um, for instance, Isaiah 64, verse 1. Uh, God is tearing the heavens into order to usher in the new creation. Mark wants you to have that idea as you read his gospel. Um, let me see. And, okay. So, the temple curtain is not just tearing for access to God, for instance, when we get the, to the end of the gospel, but also a recreation, a deliverance again. Um, also, in uh, Mark, in that text, he has a, a, a text where he says he's quoting Isaiah, but he's also quoting Malachi 3.1 and Exodus 23.20. So Mark is essentially saying in, in that tearing as well that the, all the Old Testament we need to understand messianically. Luke, we're going to see, spells this out very clearly. But how Mark is using the Old Testament, he's showing that uh, we understand now when we read the Old Testament that a lot, this was messianic, uh, quite a bit of it. And um, so he, he does that. <clears throat> and that's why I explained in the first class, Isaiah, if you ever worry about Dan Brown or any of those ideas of other gospels, the early church was clear. If they saw another book as the fifth gospel, it was the book of Isaiah. Because the book of Isaiah had so much from chapter 40 on to the end in 66 that clearly was messianic and clearly was fulfilled in Christ. Um, so they, they never gave uh, those other books um, any, any credence. Um, there's a two-part miracle that's interesting. Uh, when Jesus heals the blind man at Bethsaida, and um, it's a little odd because Jesus, he takes this blind man, he leads him outside a village, um, and he spits, uh, puts spit in the man's eyes and puts his hands on him. And Jesus asks, do you see anything? So the man opens up his eyes and he says, I, I see people. They look like trees walking around. So his, his eyesight's not that good right now. It's not that great. And so once more, Jesus puts his hands on the man's eyes. Then his eyes were opened. His sight was restored, and he saw everything then clearly. Jesus sent him home, saying, do not even go into the village. So we have Jesus using spit, and it seems strange because it's like the miracle not take the first time. Of course, that's that's not what I'm going to be falling on. So why did it take a first time? Why have the man only partly healed? And um, it serves, in one sense, Kind of two illustrations. A big illustration can be essentially understanding the Old Testament and the veiled reality of the Old Testament. And now in the, in the new coming of Christ, in the incarnation of Christ, we have had our eyes open to it. A new reality of revelation, a new sight of clarity in the things of God. But also, um, also that it's, it's a matter of true of the followers of Christ. As we continue to experience the touch of Christ through his word, through his teaching, we see more of him. We see better. Our, our vision improves. Our sight improves as we grow in knowledge of the word. Um, as we grow to have a, a greater uh, um, understanding. Where am I at time once? Five after. Okay. Uh, Mark has a debate on its ending. Um, it's probably likely that it ends at 16.8. Um, it sometimes bothers people quickly get into some of it. Uh, it seems that commentators or pe- readers later on wanted to give it a, a cleaner ending and wrote in, 
does not seem to be from Mark or Peter. Um, and actually, I like it at 16.8, and there's reasons to like it. It actually gives it a little bit of a cliffhanger. The women uh, have gone to the uh, tomb, and they are fearing and doubting at that tomb. And it has really kind of two Old Testament parallels. The first is from Genesis chapter 18, when, when a presence, a, a heavenly presence, comes to Abraham and Sarah and says uh, essentially that uh, she would receive child. And of course, Sarah does what? She laughs at the messenger's announcement that she would conceive. And then she was confronted by Abraham and Sarah denied it. And the gar there, the fear of kind of that moment, um, is very similar to what Matthew uses, 16.8. But even more than that, um, anybody think of an Old Testament book that ends on a cliffhanger, uh, that um, ends on a question mark? Think of Big Fish. Jonah. Jonah ends on a cliffhanger. Book of Jonah. Um, you know, he, uh, we don't officially know if Jonah ever had pity over Nineveh, right? We don't officially know. But yet we have the book of Jonah, so we sort of know that Jonah had pity over Nineveh. He eventually grew to the point where he could write probably a self, uh, you know, a, a book about himself that really didn't flatter him any. Um, there, there's strong parallels in that and maybe Peter's account in the gospel. Uh, Peter, Peter's showing evidence that ultimately the women's fear and uh, we all have to essentially assess the, the tomb with uh, a fear and astonishment and we have to ask ourselves, what, is, what does this mean for us? What, is, what does this look like? Um, and so this, this wouldn't be unseen in... Um, Scripture, if we had it end on 16.8. Uh, so maybe uh, while Peter first doubted like Sarah, or maybe he was cold to the IG, Jesus of being risen at first like Jonah was cold to the Ninevites, he ultimately becomes richly to believe these things even to the point of death. Um, also, this idea of ending on fear, we, I'm pretty sure the entire room knows Proverbs 9.10. Maybe you don't know it when I say Proverbs 9.10, but the fear of the Lord is the beginning of what? Wisdom. Fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and then finish out the verse, and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. So, while Mark has spent his gospel just sort of quickly running through all the miracles, uh, if it ends on 16.8, which it seems like it does, it could be like Greek biographies would have. Very much at the end, leaving you on a cliffhanger. What do you decide? Who do you decide Jesus is? Do you have fear? Who do you have? Do you have fear of the Lord? Do you have fear of his power? Because Mark shows so much of his power. All right. To close up Mark, I'm going to read um, three accounts. Uh, oh, two accounts of the passage. Uh, I, I have this passage of Mark I love. And so first I'm going to re- read Matthew. Matthew's always short and he abbreviates. Um, this is Matthew twenty seventeen nineteen, And Jesus was going up to Jerusalem. He took the 12 disciples aside and said, Look, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and the scribes. They will condemn him to death, and they will deliver him to the Gentiles to be mocked, flogged, and crucified. And on the third day, he will be raised to life. So that's Matthew. Matthew, even though he has a long gospel, is usually the most abbreviated when he gives detail. Um, then Mark's account, I... It's a passage I I often meditate on. Mark's version um, has a really unique component to it, and then we'll see probably next week, sadly. Uh, Luke has a different thing he emphasizes in the same verse. But let's look what Mark emphasizes. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. And they were amazed. And those who followed him were afraid. And talking to the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death, 
and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him, and they will spit on him, and they will flog him, and they will kill him. And after three days, he will rise. Only t- uh, This is the only time Jesus is ever portrayed in the Gospels as up ahead. Um, likely Jesus was middle of the pack walker, maybe the last one. They're amazed and fearful because they see that Jesus is leading the charge of Jerusalem. And Jesus is enthusiastic about going to Jerusalem uh, to, to take up his cross. Um, again, I, yeah, it's, it is, uh, for me, Mark's account of this scene is one of my favorite parts in all the Gospels, that our Lord was not just, you know, like I'll be, uh, when I'm driving across the country a few times in a week, now are we there yet? Are we there yet? Um, no, he was excited about this. He was running with, he was with great energy and, and, and great fear. Uh, I mean, great, great uh, courage. And when anyone else would have great fear. Um, all right. What time am I at now? Ten after. Okay. Longest book of the New Testament is Luke. Luke writes more of the New Testament than even Paul. Well, Paul writes more books. Luke is more long-winded, and so by length, uh, Luke gives us more. Luke was a historian. He stands apart as elite of elite, even when you compare him to the Roman historians that were hired by the Caesars and such, he stands apart. He is truly a master historian. Um, I remember my Acts class in seminary, uh, just comparing his work to the works of others and... um, he is, he's a brilliant man. Um, nobody uh, bends the knee for his time period for a historical. So his biography is very history-driven. Um, he has no problem quoting the Greek Old Testament, which shows that God is not tied to just one translation. Um, let people who uh, got off track in church history with the Latin Vulgate or the modern idea of King James onlyism hear that. Uh, God doesn't mind occasionally quoting other translations. Um, the themes of Luke is that salvation for all kinds of people, particularly the outcasts, the marginalized in society. For example, shepherds, immoral women, Zacchaeus, publicans, thief on the cross, prodigal son, um, also women. Luke has 13 additional women never mentioned in other Gospels. Uh, Luke is wants to make clear that uh, uh, women are a part of the Lord's kingdom and have a significant role. Uh, The Holy Spirit is also very prominent in Luke's gospel and wants to make clear that Christ helps usher in the gift of the Holy Spirit uh, coming upon the people of God. While Matthew emphasizes the kingdom of heaven coming down to earth, Luke emphasizes the kingdom of God. There's a small contrast with Matthew, but essentially still the same. Um, Luke, like Matthew, talks about Jesus as an infant, um, but he probably gives us our favorite detail around the time of Christmas. Um, And uh, we really see two blessed women at the beginning. Of course, uh, Elizabeth is blessed because she's given life uh, to a baby, uh, John, Baptist, her and her husband, after years of, of essentially being an Abraham and a Sarah, uh, they uh, give birth to John and then more infinitely blessed for all ages, Mary. Um, Luke has little differences. His temptation narrative differs from Matthew. For instance, Jesus ends at Luke's temptation when he accounts it at the temple. Um, and when Matthew... Matthew ends up, and it sounds like Jesus and Satan might be in the atmosphere uh, because he takes him up to a high hill where he can essentially see all the world. Um, Think again of the larger emphasis. The kingdom of heaven is Matthew's emphasis. It's not that they're conflicting. It's that two men are drawing the temptation. I, I strongly doubt Jesus was only tempted three or four times out in the wilderness by Satan. I think he took plenty of opportunity. Uh, but they are making theological points in what they select. And so uh, Jesus, um, 
Matthew, uh, Luke is going to, in chapter 9 to 19, and we'll go over this a little more next week, he's going to go in slow motion as Jesus is walking to Jerusalem. So there's a point there. He's going to make a dramatic effect. Once Jesus in the narrative turns his sights toward Jerusalem, Matthew, I mean Luke slows way down. He goes really slow, and he does that um, intentionally. So, so um, they help show us the picture. The genealogy differences. Matthew, uh, Matthew and Luke, this troubles people at times, but again, um, it's possible. I'm solid with the idea of it's, it's pretty clear that Mary helps Luke make this gospel. While often Luke is also attributed to Paul, and we'll see a lot of Paul's Corinthian language and how Luke words the Lord's Supper. Um, so Paul definitely has probably some influence. Um, I think Mary is clearly here as well. And um, so that genealogy, but also Luke is emphasizing different things. Um, so he's going all the way back to Adam. And when you talk about the word son of, in the Greek, that's Iesu, um, it also can be descendant of. Uh, it doesn't have to be that we're talking literal one for one on generations. It's just a translational reality. It Either one of them could be kind of skipping a few generations to go to another key name um, and emphasizing. So, again, theological points in the portraits of the genealogy. Um, so, interchangeable in that regard. Uh, with that, let's see. How many? I would have five if I push it. No? I don't even have five. So, we'll go into a little bit of Luke text really quickly, maybe 10 minutes next week, and then conclude with John. But any questions of that rapid material? So how much of Luke is I, Well, I think as a historian, he just interviewed her. I, I think in the first couple chapters, I mean, the fact that we know about Elizabeth, Elizabeth was older than Mary, quite a bit older. We know all the details of John the Baptist's birth, and then Mary, after that birth, leaves. Where, where would Luke have gotten this information? Oh, from Mary, I believe. Oh, uh, Paul, the early church definitely talks about Paul as a, uh, as a help to him. Um, and that's interesting. That, that also adds to questions if the early church is right about that, um, that Paul also helped. Um, how much was Paul aware of Jesus' ministry at the time, possibly? You have, you have the gospel, yeah. In one sense, they're the same book. I like to see one as a volume of the second person of the so Trinity, and one as a volume of the third person of the Trinity, oh, emphasizing, clearly, emphasizing that person Paul. of the Trinity. Yeah. Well, Luke is already probably with Paul by the time Luke starts to write. So it's, it, it's remember that both the intro of the Gospel of Luke and the intro of Acts, we have a benefactor who is essentially paid Luke, uh, probably, because writing a book like this, especially as long as Luke is, paper was expensive to commission this type of project. you got to you got to put up a lot of dough in one sense. Um, and so, but that happens later on in Luke's life. All these Gospels come decades after the cross. And so they're all masterpieces. They're all theological masterpieces. And, and Luke, I think, is the investigator of the group. He's the historian that goes to the primary sources, and he investigates and gets those firsthand accounts. And obviously the Holy Spirit works through him as well. Yeah. Uh, Luke, debate on Luke's writing, um, but I believe it took place before um, the uh, persecution, uh, before Paul's death. Uh, some people s want to say post-temple destruction. That's mainly liberal uh, scholars because of that. So some people say post-70. 70 AD is the big date that everybody wants to. I, I tend to believe pre and it's quite, I forget the location at the time, at the moment. I'll go check that 
last time, but I don't want to say the wrong city. The veil turn, uh, yeah. Again, it's it's it is. I think access to the holy of holies, the holy of holies. And in one sense, we're going to go here from the book of Hebrews. It also is allusion to the fact that the temple system's done. Um, Christ has destroyed the temple. This system's done. There's a, a one of the fascinating articles I've ever read is on um, the Jewish writings of the forty years after the cross. There's Talmudic sources that basically say the high priests were going in and they saw no presence of God, which is just interesting. It's, it's from a reputable seminary. If anybody's interested, write me an email. I'll send it to you. Um, it's, it was in the article of uh, the Jets. Um, it's a fascinating thing. Uh, somebody from Southern Seminary wrote it. Uh, but um, So I definitely think there's a temple presence is removed at that point. But also, again, we look at the Greek... Old Testament, and the Greek Old Testament wouldn't have been their original, but the gospel writers are okay reading it and, and quoting it at times. When we look at the Greek, those tearings are also the tearing of the current establishment in the world in one sense, and uh, tearing into a new creation. A new creation is coming. Um, and, and that's what we've been promised since... Uh, Adam and Eve in the garden, 314. And so this veil, both tearings in that, both the baptism of Jesus and the veil in Mark's gospel, I I think also have allusion to the beginning of the new creation that we see, of course, first off, foremost in Christ. And so even if, going back on Mark, if it ends on 16.8, which is a cliffhanger, the tearing of the veil, uh, Peter tips his hand that he's, he knows what's happened. He knows what's gone on. He knows that a new creation has a new through the body of Christ, even though the, it ends basically with the fear of the tomb being empty, if this is the, the actual ending. That's not a problem. What, with Peter's account. Well, Peter's the one who feeds the story to Mark. Uh, in this gospel, we know well. Yeah, so I'm getting to wrap it up for my wife in the back. All right, let's pray. Father God, we thank you for the blessings of hearing from your word. And uh, we just uh, praise you that we can go on and worship you and uh, worship. We We give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen.